Okay. The passage is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 to 11. Again, that's 1 Peter 4, 3 to 11. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, crowding, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others, as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. probably don't realize how strong you are. You feel weak because you've been through some difficult years not so long ago and you're still working out your purpose as the English congregations but you probably don't realize how strong you are. You're doing great. Well done. So I'm going to pass around uh, the next sheet, and as this goes around, uh, I'd love for you to be ready for the discussion groups that are going to happen later on today. Oh, here we go, ever helpful. Thank you very much. Here they come. So I made a picture of you, individually, one picture that represents each of you. Taken from a particular angle, would you like to see? It's quite creative. Okay, here it comes. That's not you. There it is. Do you see the likeness? That's you. I'll come back to that. I feel like I didn't give a good answer last night. Someone asked a very good question, and I gave a not very good answer. The good question was, how do we grow up? And I think I want to say this. I want to say, take responsibility for your heart before the Lord. 
Take responsibility for cultivating your sense of identity in Christ. Your values arising out of who you were in Christ. And your sense of purpose in the world. And therefore the commitments you will make and the habits that will shape your life. And as you do that, then take responsibility for all that lies before you. And all that you leave in your wake. And learn to own it. And in doing so, you will grow up and you'll be a wonderful woman or man of God. And I see that already among you. And I see this very strongly among you. Of course, statistically and pastorally, there will be some here who are not sure where they stand before God. And there's some here who will be still deciding whether they belong to the Lord or not. And I really want to encourage you, especially if you are a second generation Christian person. Your parents perhaps migrated here and they expressed their faith in another language and very much embedded in a culture. One of the advantages you have as a second generation congregation is that you've been forced to do something that many do not get to do. You've been forced to articulate your faith in a culture different to your parents. And as many difficulties that come with that, tensions perhaps even, disagreements, the upside is that it's forcing you to articulate and own your faith much faster than many children of um, embedded cultures do. So you are being forced to work this out in your context. And it's looking a little bit different, isn't it, to the way your parents own their faith. There are cultural layers that cannot translate to where you are up to. So I want to encourage you that in, in that. Uh, don't be dismayed, but keep doing that work together of working out your faith and owning your faith in your context. And please, if you've not made that decision yet to own Jesus for yourself, uh, you are among great company to sort that out together. And so back to the picture. Did anyone work it out? How is this a picture of you? I'll give you a clue. The number of dots going down is 52. (laughs) Now, is it a picture of you? The number of dots going across is 90. Yeah, that's pretty much a dot for every week of an average life. That's your life in dots. One week per dot. You know, a week can go pretty quick. Tick it off. There's your dots. Me, I'm up to about halfway along, and I'm pretty much near the top because my birthday was... On Tuesday, so I've started a new line. I'm coming down the middle right now. <coughs> line number 46. I don't know how many dots I'm going to get. This is just a statistical me. It's not an actual me. This could be my last dot. <laughs> See you in heaven. <laughs> and of course, that's only one camera angle on your life, isn't it? That's a very now-centric earth-centric, life-centric view of your life. From God's point of view, your life on this earth is one dot in a thousand million trillion however many eons of years you want. So there are many different camera angles. Here's another picture. Oh, time's precious. Don't waste it. Don't look too long at this picture. You'll start to have thoughts about dysfunctional digestion. Wow. So let's come to 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. I do need to explain as well, in case alarm bells have gone off and someone's thinking, gee, this guy doesn't preach from the Bible very much. We seem to just skate through little passages and then dive out to diagrams. I just need to explain that uh, as a church, we commit very strongly to exegetical preaching and we preach through the scriptures systematically 
And I've been in my church for 10 years, and we're just working through every book of the Bible, not sequentially, but eventually. And after another 20 years, I'll get to the end. So we preach exegetically through passages of Scripture and through texts of the Bible. And so 1 Peter, we would treat as a series, and we'd give it 10 weeks, and we'd work through it. But what we're doing with a topical series is pulling together threads. And every now and then we'll stop and do that. We'll pull back from our exegesis and we'll address a topic. So in our church just recently, we did four weeks on the theme of friendship. Just the importance of godly friend making. Because we discerned that that's something that we don't tend to appreciate enough in our culture and in our church context. We need to teach our church how to be good friends to one another. And so that's how this series arose. We thought, well, let's help our church think about our intergenerationality and appreciate one another in our different life stages and, more importantly, learn how to minister to one another. And that's where I want to head today. I want to help us to think, how do we actually uh, relate and help one another to appreciate and live in the life stage that they are at? So 1 Peter chapter 4 is a beautiful place to get our sense of bearings because Peter is speaking about our lives now in relation to all that is about to happen in God's timing. And can you see 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 3? Speaking to people who've been converted out of a godless lifestyle, he says, you have spent enough time in the past in debauchery, Lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Enough time. See the time clue. And I want you to notice all of these words. Firstly, we're not sure what all of them mean, are we immediately? Is the, are these words we use? What is debauchery? What is carousing? Okay, orgies. Hmm, I think I learned about that in history class. <laughs> Drunkenness, we're familiar with that. That kind of translates across cultures. Lust, yes. Debauchery, what are all these words? These are many and various descriptions of pretty much the one thing. Immediate gratification. This is worldliness. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. All we have is now. That's the mentality behind drunkenness, isn't it? Getting yourself blind. Who cares about the consequence? I want to have a great time right now. Give me another drink, please. And that's what the orgy is about. Sexually, yes. But an orgy is really just throwing yourself in without regard for consequence, just swimming in the immediacy of the pleasure of the moment. An orgy of anything. You could have an orgy of computer gaming. Carousing, that's about how you carry yourself in that. Who cares what you think? And you're loud and you're obnoxious about it and you carry yourself in a way that makes it all about you. Detestable idolatry. Yeah. So all of these words translate to any kind of indulgence, our world is drunk on any number of things from money to career to pleasure to whatever. That's the definition of worldliness. It's living for the now without a sense of what's next. So enough of that. That's godlessness. It's not where we belong. It's not our pursuit. Enough time has been spent wasted on worldliness. And so what is our timing? Our timing is based on God's grand scheme. And he has promised that this world will end, this world will pass away, and what seems like a long life is actually a short blip in an eternity that he has planned. And he is ready now 
to judge the living and the dead. That's an all-encompassing moment in time, isn't it? Where anyone who has ever lived and anyone who is living shall arrive at the same moment in time where God flicks on the lights. You know that moment I was talking about and all the cockroaches are caught? That's how it will be. People carrying on in their godlessness as though all they have is their own self to account for. Suddenly, the lights will go on. And all will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Do you see the time clue again in this language? In the first, in verse 3, the time clue was all about what's been done in the past and having spent enough time. And now the time clue is ready. God is ready. That's how we live our lives as Christians, isn't it? We live our lives knowing that this is not how it will always be. There is a next. And spiritually, God is absolutely ready. Any day now. Any day now. And so Peter says, God is ready to judge the living and the dead. So what do we do? How do we live our lives? How do we run away from worldliness? We remember that the end of all things is near. I love this because it's not a statement of threat for us. It's a statement of great joy and hope. The end of all things are things as we see them now. But the end of all things as we see them now is the beginning of all things as they will be and will be forever and ought to be. And that future, friends, that new creation, our resurrection is near. I hope I didn't scare you by talking about death being right here. A couple of people came up to me afterwards and said, you worried me. <laughs> Well, right on the other side of death, you will see the face of God. Right on the other side of that curtain, you will rise in the new creation. If death is right here, then your future is as close as that to you. Have great hope in this. Have nothing to fear in this, for Jesus who saved you will carry you through that curtain into your future eternity. The end of all things is near. There's a reason to rejoice. And that's where Peter is going to go with this. <coughs> now, it's been lovely to visit your weekend away, but I wonder if any of you were, remember back to a weekend away that you've had where this person attended. Does anyone remember the face? Were you there? In fact, you were all there. It was 2019. Yeah, yeah. So my kids have this app, it's called Oldify. <laughs> And they take a picture of dad, they crunch it through Oldify, and ha ha ha, that's you. Yeah, that's right. Hey, what's what? Yeah, the end is near. So either Jesus is going to come back, or I will walk through the curtain of death. And either way, I'll see you right at that same moment. Right at that same moment where the Lord calls forth the living and the dead. Either Jesus will come back or I will walk through that curtain of death, which is nearer to me than it is to you. And I'll see you there. Wow. Just a little aside. Jesus returning, you can be absolutely certain of this. 
Let me tell you, the fundamental pillar of our convictions is that God created everything. We live in a created world that is not here by accident. Speaking from a physics point of view, the physicists still have no explanation as to how absolutely nothing can spontaneously explode into absolutely everything. There is no explanation. You'll hear the language of quantum fluctuation, ripples in quantumness. It's a hypothetical idea. It's a stretch, a reach into unknown, a grasping at straws, suggesting, well, of course, there had to be something to generate the everything. And so we'll just call it quantum fluctuation, whatever that is. Never feel intimidated by the physics. There is no explanation as to how nothing can spontaneously big bang into everything. Plenty of studies tracing back to the big bang, plenty of studies of how everything could go back to a singularity and a moment, but past that moment, before that moment, this right. And then why everything should turn out to be so structured and wonderful. Why everything in the universe should turn out to be so extraordinary. Let me tell you about the capture of helium inside the sun. So nuclear fusion inside the stars, helium nuclei pressed so close to each other that the electrons are irrelevant. It's all about nucleus. Remember the neutrons and protons? The hard, solid nucleus jammed up against each other. That's how much pressure and proximity and density you have inside stars. Enough heat, enough bouncing around, enough energy, and two helium nuclei can jam together and become one nucleus. A highly unstable isotope of beryllium. We're talking so unstable that it cannot hold itself together. It's got the wrong ratio of protons and neutrons. The strong force can't do its job. And it falls apart in a split, split, split second. Okay, so two helium makes beryllium, but not your average beryllium, not the kind you pick up from Kmart. This is unstable beryllium. It falls apart in a split second. And we're talking split, split. But in that split second, in that split second, if a third helium can come along and work its way into that beryllium, everything will be stable and you have carbon. So that third helium must strike those, that wobbly beryllium at precisely, in precisely the right way, in the precise right moment, to form that stable helium, here's the problem. What they call the nuclear resonance. Let's call it, for our purposes, the wobble. The wobble of that beryllium has to be exactly right for the incoming helium to take, to penetrate, to bind, to hold. The wobble. Scientists have worked out that that wobble is so precisely tuned for the capture of the third helium that if you tweaked that little dial, not by 1%, not even by a thousandth of a percent, but one ten thousandth of a percent, if you change the nuclear resonance of that unstable beryllium by one ten thousandth of a percent, the third helium just bounces off. What? One ten thousandth of a percent on one dial in a universe of dials impossibly precisely set so that you and I sit here today as constructions of carbon in this magnificent universe Wow. There you go. Creation. 
If we are not meaningless accidents in a meaningless universe, then we are purposeful creatures of a purposeful God. If we are not meaningless accidents in a meaningless universe, we are purposeful creatures of a purposeful God. And that means we are accountable. By definition, the maker makes, the maker owns. So creation cries out for some kind of resolution day. You get this? I want you to follow the logic. There's a day of creation means there will be some kind of day of reconciliation, accounting. Add to that the second day, the second pillar of our faith. So if the first, first pillar is the creation of the world, the absolute certainty of it, and no scientist can take away your certainty in the creation. The second pillar is the incarnation. That Jesus came into the world, God in the flesh, that lived a perfect life, astounding even his enemies. That he gave his life on the cross for us, and after three days burst forth from the grave, a dead body, <clears throat> suddenly gasping with life, and Christianity just exploded out of that point in space and time. Histriologists cannot explain the rise of Christianity overnight echoing through the known world at the time, within generations reaching Rome itself. Every other religion in history has had a cooking time. Every other religion comes out of a milieu of philosophy and ideas and cultural forces and slowly boils and slowly accumulates and coagulates into ideas that are passed on and then a body of knowledge accumulates. But Christianity just goes bang into history. There was Judaism, which had no concept and then suddenly Jesus, bang, overnight, a whole new study of the scriptures bursts forth out of religion. Suddenly they're reading the Old Testament scriptures and they're seeing the prophecies of the Messiah in a way that were never seen before. They're understanding the cohesiveness of the trajectory towards Jesus in a way that had never been before. A whole new hymnology that we still have evidence of, songs that were sung, early creeds that were formed, exploding in the space of years in that Jerusalem church and then suddenly out to the empires. And all this from a group of fishermen, deadbeats, who talked funny, who went from absolute losers at the bottom of the pit, no reason for anything, to suddenly world-changing, give their life for him, die on the cross for him, disciples. Do you get that? The explosion of Christianity in history has no explanation other than something happened on that third day. They saw him. Their lives were changed. Their world perspectives were revolutionized. And suddenly Christianity became an unstoppable worldwide global movement that has echoed all the way to East Linfield today. Do you see that idea? And no one can take away the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. So this first pillar, the creation, crying out for some kind of accountability. God made everything, and yet everything is going against him. There will be some day of reckoning. How much more now that Jesus has come from God? God himself has given his life on the tree. The Son of God was executed right in the midst of his own creation. How much more must there be a day of judgment? Do you see the idea? God made, of course there will be a reckoning at the end. God came into his creation and gave his life for the sins of the world and he was executed by his own creatures. Of course there will be a day of reckoning. Do you see? These are the three great pillars of our faith. The creation, Jesus in history, the return of Christ. There is no, no taking away from the certainty of of the return of Jesus and the judgment day. It is as sure as the day of creation. It's as sure as the incarnation. Jesus will come again. Stake your life on it. Build your life around it. It is so certain the end is near. Does that make sense? And so, what do I do with my life? 
Peter goes on. Now it's ministry time. Have a look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 again. What Peter says, the end is near, therefore, click the clicker. Here it is. The end of all things is near, therefore, be alert. Be sober-minded so that you can pray. Alert means wake up. It's the opposite of drunken and slumbering. Oh, living for the now. Oh, there's nothing. Wake up, people. We are in the end. Be sober-minded so that you can pray. This is the opposite of worldliness. It's a life lived in prayerful dependence on God. A prayerful life. A Godward life. Wake up and pray. This is who we are. This is what we do. And Peter says, above all, love each other deeply from the heart. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. You don't know what you do to do with your life? The New Testament says, wake up and love. Love your neighbor. Love your church. Love the person in front of you. Wake up and love. And here is the beginning of a vision for a life lived for the Lord. It's not about me. By definition, love is making it all about the other person. It's not about me. Worldliness, drunkenness, orgies, carousing. It's all about me. What can I take out of life? No, the Christian wakes up in the morning. What can I give out of love? For the God who loves me and has ordained for me an eternity with him. My Lord is coming for me, either on the other side of the curtain of death or coming in the clouds. My Lord is coming for me. And so I'm going to live my life in love. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Do you like that? What a beautiful, beautiful remedial God we have. Think of all the messes and complications we get ourselves in, all the muck and trouble. It doesn't matter where you've got to in your life, there is always a godly way forward from this point on. Find your way forward in God's strength to live a life of love, serving others, loving others. And let that just rule a line on a multitude of bad mistakes in the past, of wrong-headed direction. Rule a line today, wake up this morning and determine that you will love and love covers over a multitude of sins, the trouble that we can cause one another, the hurt that I can cause to you. Think of all the mess we could make as a church. Give us 10 years how we could hurt each other. Oh, no. But how much more then can we love one another? And even though we might hurt each other, you will find it in you to forgive me. And even though you might let me down, I will find it in me from God's strength to forbear with that and forgive and to love you. And over all these sins that might divide us and destroy us, we will learn to love. Do you see the power of this? This is the heart of Christian ministry. This is the center of the Christian life. Wake up and pray. Get out and love. You don't know what you do with your life? Wake up and pray. Get out and love. This is... Wonderful, isn't it? It's a description of the Christian community. Loving one another, welcoming one another, and picking out a thread of ideas from this passage. He says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's a beautiful description, isn't it, of the Christian church realizing their identity together in Christ, opening up their homes to one another, befriending one another, pulling together, loving one another. And putting aside all the things that we, we might want to pick fault in one another. I've got this to grumble about you. I've got this to complain about you. I'm feeling really, really, really. No, 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 no. Let's open up our hearts and open up our tables and open up our homes. And love one another inclusively. And then the rest of this passage has the church community then turn outward to the world. For this is the pattern of ministry. It's about knowing where you are in time, the end of all things is near. God's eternity is coming next. So what do I do? I sober up, I become alert, and I realize the urgency of today, the importance of today for serving the Lord. And so I pray, and I love, and I open up my life and my heart to my brothers and sisters, hospitality. And now I use whatever I have 
to serve. This is what your finances are for. This is what your university degree is for. This is what your life is for. For serving others. And don't just think serving at church. Think serving everywhere. Peter's conception of service is global. It's all of your life given to serving others. And that's where our word ministry comes from. Faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And as you use what you have to serve others, you'll find God is working through you. God's grace administered in its various forms. She has a gift for helping people with their learning. She becomes a teacher and she serves those children and she finds that her grace, that God's grace is manifest in her gift used to serve others. He has a gift for administering good organisation and he gives his heart to building an organisation that is great blessing to the community. And God's grace is administered through him. She has a great blessing for looking after the children at church and she does that to God's glory and honour. Whatever you do, whatever gift you've received, serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If you're going to say something, make it count. Imagine what God would want to say right now in this moment. And say that. And if you're going to do something, let it be to serve. And do it with the strength that he provides, so that in all things, not in some little compartment on Sunday, or some moment for impressing fellow Christians, but in all things, in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. I hope you get the excitement of that vision of the Christian life lived for the Lord because he is coming. What I'd like to do just as a final thing with you today is to join some dots. We've been talking about life stages and I'd like to come to that sheet that's in front of me. Is there a spare copy that I could have back here? Thank you very much. Okay, check it out on this side. I'd like us to think about what it means to step up and grow up into the phase of life that we're in. Have we got energy for this? Because I can stop now if that suits. It's not a problem. Shall I just keep going? Feel free to sleep. Some, some of those are already gone. That's fine, totally. It's the end of camp. Totally get it. Feel free to, to sleep. Just careful of the dribble. Okay. Let's just step through these stages of life. And I want you to think now. Okay. Think about back to your church. And think about the capacity you have to multi-generationalize your love for one another. And learn to serve one another between generations. So now I want you to think about the children of your church. And praise the Lord, we've had some children of the church with us this weekend, but I understand there's more that uh, weren't able to join. And of course, there are other children in your life that this is all applicable to. But I want you to think for a moment, how can I love and serve the children in my church? Well, here's the first thing. Understand where they're up to in their life. They have that wonderful combination of time and energy and zero experience. It's called naivety and it's beautiful, right? It's cute. What a great time for children to be learning ministry. The one big command to children in Scripture is to obey. And what's that obedience about? It's about uh, learning to be dependent. So I'm going to read the little paragraph at the bottom right-hand corner of this page. Have you got it? A child is privileged to receive life. It's provided by God with the opportunity and resources to become a contributing adult. That's the purpose of childhood. It's to 
grow into adulthood while spiritually gaining identity, learning dependence and willing submission and obedience to the wisdom of those over us. That's the best thing you learn out of your childhood. You learn who you are. And dysfunctional adults uh, arise from a childhood where identity has been conflicted and confounded. But praise God if you grew up knowing who you are, learning that you can trust the one above you, who is mother or father, and ultimately God, learning that sense of dependence and that you need to submit yourself to the wisdom of those over you. That's a lesson you'll take through the rest of your life, being able to submit in obedience to the wisdom of those that have been put over you, ultimately God. And so we grow out of childhood as we step up to take responsibility for ourselves. We talked about that. So let's think about this. How can you as a church be helping the children in your church? And I really want to encourage you to love the children in your church through their parents. That's the appropriate way. First of all, learn the names of the kids in your church. Will you do that? Will you take the time to learn the names of the children in your church and learn to relate to them? Let them know that they're seen and they're noticed. Okay, a little fist punch, a little wave and a smile from the big people like you will really be meaningful for them and for their mum and dad. And then how you love the children in your church is through their parents. You see, parents are working very hard. It's tough, especially when the children are young and they need your encouragement. And so can I really urge you to get alongside the parents in your church and encourage them. They need sisters and brothers too. They need people who they know are praying for them. And so encourage that kind of language in your relating to the parents of children. You know, you say, you've got a big responsibility. How can I pray for you as parents? And there's a very special type of relationship that can happen between, say, church like yours, which is dominated by a younger crowd, and the rest of your church, which may have more families than children. And it's what we call the big sister connection. Many parents of younger children would really love to have just a couple of godly young women in their life. Maybe in their late teens, 20s, 30s, whatever. Godly young women in their life who can be a big sister to their child. Maybe look after the child while the parents go out for a night and have a break. Maybe come frequently for a meal and become a known and trusted big sister for that child in the church. Like an extra auntie. But what you'll find is, if you're able to do this, big sisters, is that you will find in that household something you need as well. You'll find you have a big brother and a big sister. Does that make sense? So as this 20-something starts connecting herself to this family and being helpful with the child and becoming like another auntie in the Lord to this little one, a big sister she will find that she has a big sister in the mother and someone to learn from and to learn life from. A mentoring little triangle, isn't it? And a big brother to learn life from too. So I want to encourage that kind of connection. If you have the maturity for it, why don't you sidle up to one of the families and just offer to be, to be there, to be helpful. And I encourage the families in the church to reach out for that kind of relationship. It will be very meaningful. And fellas, don't worry, your time kicks in as well. Especially as the children get older and as boys get older, they really need you guys. So in my church, I've got a 14-year-old and an 11-year-old. I can be a mentor and role model to them, but what they really need, they need guys in your life stage. And so what I do is I invite someone from my church to disciple or mentor my children when they get to those teenage years. And you are so well-placed to be great role models, examples. So is that helpful as an idea? How do you relate to the children in your church? Appreciate them and love them, but serve them through the families, by serving the families. 
Let's go to the next one. And by the way, families, now is the time to teach your children how to serve and begin in the home, right? Remember, now is the time for ministry, serving the world, serving our church. So begin in your home. Teach your children how to be servants. Show them how you serve. Show them how you do ministry. Let them see it in the home and then let them see you serving in church and show them how to serve with you. And so right from the beginning, we teach our children that our lives are for serving. Does that make sense as an idea? So children, the big lesson they learn is to obey and they get their sense of identity and dependence from that. And they have this great and wonderful energy by which we should teach them to step up and learn how to serve. So let's go to the next group. Learn to serve. There you go. Let's go to the next group. It is quick. Youth, 18 to 40. Love you guys. What have you got? You've still got lots of time and energy. But now you have capacity. Man, you have capacity. And it's great to see. And I've got to tell you, your stage of life is so needed for energizing ministry. It's your crowd that does the beach missioning. It's your crowd that puts into those ministry teams all over the place. And we love it. And I need you to know how encouraging it is. You don't realize how encouraging it is for the oldies at church when the youngies get into it. Telling you, you've got no idea. When they see you up front, zealous for the Lord, doing your thing, when they hear what you're doing in your workplaces, zealous for the Lord, you are so encouraging. You've got no idea. Thank you for energizing our ministries. And what young people need to learn above all, the big lesson of the young years is to make your life one of serving. So you've got all this passion and, and purpose, uh, passion and energy. Let's read the paragraph on the bottom right-hand corner of the page for the youth. It says, a young adult is privileged to receive investment of others in training and resourcing, is provided by God with strength and energetic passion. That's your thing. Spiritually, youth is about finding purpose, learning self-control and humble service, and fleeing the pitfalls of arrogance and aimlessness. We've talked about that. And so, can I really encourage you in your youth not to fall into the pit, the danger of putting off ministry, thinking, I've got to get my career sorted out first, and then I'll serve. No, 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 no. Make this part of your DNA now that you are a servant. And a great way for others who are not in that category to help our young people to get involved. Uh, something like this. You've got a lot to offer. Would you like to help us? And I really encourage the older people in your church, who I know can't even hear me right now, uh, to... <laughs> Not be intimidated by these young things and the funny way they talk. <laughs> but to let them know how needed they are. And in the absence of the oldies, I want to tell you guys that you are so needed and valued. So get involved. Let's go to the middle. Middle age, this is my territory. I'm six years into this. I've got another, you know, decade and a half to go of my best productive years. I'm okay with that. Uh, whoops, back. And this is the time to really anchor ministry. And by anchoring, I mean it's about that maturity that comes, that can only come through experience and being someone established in God. That means we're not tossed and turned. There's a great danger in our youth to go flying after this, to go into that, and it's later in life that we learn to anchor. Okay, settled. And we need those middle ages to really anchor our homes and our households and our families. We need them to anchor our churches and our workplaces, and that's by and large what people do in this life stage. And I just want to really honour, on your behalf, church, the people in middle age in your church who are serving the Lord with great zeal, uh, because that is a precious thing in our world. But I do want to give a word of warning 
to those in middle age, be very careful of this. This is what I often see. It's called outsourcing. So it's reaching into the pocket, nice and deep, putting in big money at church, right? Giving a lot. Oh yeah, I give a lot. I earn a lot, and so I give a lot. And then I don't do a lot. Do you get the idea? Earn a lot, because I'm so invested in my work. Give a lot, because hey, the Lord's been really generous to me. And then don't do a lot. It's called outsourcing. Here, young things, you go do the ministry, I give a lot. And you'll see that in your churches. People who try and outsource the work by doing all the giving. I really encourage you in your middle age, and if you're listening in your middle age, to don't be that person. No, don't give your money as an excuse for not giving yourself. Give yourself to serve the Lord. Make your work, daily work, a real ministry for the Lord. And give yourself to your church ministries and to your family. No outsourcing. And so I just want to encourage the rest of you. How can you encourage these people in this middle age to be serving the Lord? Well, I think just honouring the huge load that they carry. You have a lot on. Uh, And so can I help? Can I help you? Young people, don't be intimidated by the older ones. You know how the older people are sometimes scary? Can I just tell you, they're just big kids growing up, right? They were where you were once. So don't be intimidated by them and all their power. Start up, take the initiative if you have to, and offer to be helpful to them. Reach out. Let's go to the retiring age. We're almost there. This is the time, and this will be my next phase. If you catch me up in 15 years, this is where I will be. I'll be starting to hand on ministries, stepping back from ministries, going to different kinds of roles, but mostly about handing on the baton and having the role of being guide and coach and encourager. So let me read the statement for the retiring. It says, a person in the process of retiring is privileged to be handing on important roles while having the strength to provide active mentoring and support. They're provided by God with a bigger life perspective to be able to do this. And spiritually, it's about passing the baton on, moving on to other kinds of service, being careful of self-indulgent worldly retirement. And I, I just want to encourage you guys, you have a role to play in helping your parents to stay focused on the kingdom of God in their retirement. And I think there's a great danger for people, even in churches, to treat their retirement age as a kind of off-duty. You know, I once did beach mission. I was once a deacon. I was once very involved in this, very involved, but now I'm off-duty. No, that's not how we enter into these years as Christians. Uh, Let's be all the more zealous for the work of the Lord. And you can sidle up to the retiring age in your church, the 60 plus, and you can let them know that you appreciate they've got a lot to offer. You've had a lot of experience. What did you do in this situation? What did you do in that situation? What's your advice for us here at the English congregation? What do you think we should be thinking about as we look to the future? So involve and and invite coaching support from those older ones. Does that make sense? Last one is the seniors. This is you in your future, friends. And we need you to arrive in this phase of your life as an inspiration. The legacy of your walk with God will be known. And you will be a walking trophy of God's grace. And that's how you should see the senior godly people in your church They are being called upon to persevere. That's the big task ahead. And it's not going to be easy to persevere all the way to the end in their old age. And they really need your encouragement and your prayer. Old age is tough. So please encourage them. And I want you to really make the effort to honour the elderly in your church. There's a real danger in the senior years of fading back and feeling irrelevant. And you and I can greatly help people in this age 
to feel appreciated. A couple of words on, on pastoral issues. So sometimes we can think people who are very old have no real spiritual needs. They have the same spiritual needs that you do. They have doubts about their faith. They have trials and temptations. Uh, sometimes the older people have learned this kind of sage-like wisdom. You know that sweet face, the granny face? And that untouchable, solemn grandpa face? Like, I've been around, kid, don't you tell me a thing. It's well-practiced, friends, and it is just a face. Behind that face is a little girl and a little boy, and they have fears for the future and worries for the past, and they're as broken as you and I. So don't get put off by that sage-like wisdom. Push through. Uh, even old people need pastoral care. They need someone to ask, saddle up to them and say, how are you going? Can I pray for you? What are you worried about? Does that make sense? And how exciting would it be is if this generation of the church was unleashed as an army of carers and Christian support for those in the later years of their life and you help them to finish strong in the Lord, you help them to persevere all the way to the arms of Jesus. How wonderful would it be is if this generation sidled up to the older people in the church saying, you have much to share is it okay for me to visit you? And I tell you, you will get more out of it than they will. Does this make sense as an idea? I'm trying to help you join some dots here. I think our church is multi-generational. God's body is multi-generational. And we have much to learn and grow in together. This is Australia. That's my church in the morning. So a pretty good representation, but you can see we don't quite have the seniors that we would have, but there's a mobility issue. There's a reason why a lot of seniors can't get to church on a Sunday. That's the future of Australia. It's called ageing population. It's a global thing. We're living longer. We're having less children. So we're starting to skew towards age. Churches need to think about how we minister to the elderly. And if that's my morning congregation, <laughs> surprise, surprise, that's my evening congregation. Yeah, so we've got the same issue, yeah? No one sets up their evening congregation to make it youthy. It's just, that's the gravity, isn't it? It's a weird gravity that makes it that way. And we've decided to try and fight that gravity. So we... Uh, yeah, the various strategies to make sure whatever happens on Sunday is not an expression of our whole church. So there are other ways outside of Sunday that we can embed the generations into each other's lives. Well, friends, you have been so patient. I've said just about anything I ever knew on any topic, and you've been <laughs> wonderful about that. So let me pray for you as we finish. I hope I've given you enough to think about in your discussion group. So the idea on this page is to think about people in your church in different generations and ask the question, how can I help this person to mature in their faith? What role do I play in helping someone who is older than me or younger than me mature in their faith? And how can I help them serve in ministry? Let me pray. Father, I want to thank you for your love in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the certainty of all that you are doing. Your plan to bring an end to this world and to inaugurate the new creation and all its wonder, perfection, and all the hope that we have for it. Thank you for the certainty of that. It's as real as the resurrection of Jesus. It's as certain as the day of creation. So please bring that day soon, we pray, God. And in the meantime, will you help us to wake up, to wake up to each day and be prayerful, to be determined to love, to give our lives in hospitality and welcome and service of others. Everything we say, everything we do, not for ourselves, but for your great honour and glory. And please help our churches to grow together, loving one another, appreciating each life stage, and helping each other grow in our love for you. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.